I bow to that Guru who is Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwara, as well as the transcendental, supreme Brahma. There have been many scriptures in the world, both sacred and profane, both profound and shallow, to which men at different times have clung as if they and they alone contain the entire truth of life. Time has been the touchstone on which most of them have been tried and found wanting and thus sunk into oblivion. The Bhagavad Gita, however, has stood the test of time and today, more than any other scripture, the world has produced, the Gita has a message for suffering mankind. It brings not just a ray of hope, but a burst of blinding sunshine into the dejected mind of the modern man, standing on the brink of a catastrophic war on a battlefield which is not of his own making projected willy-nilly into the arena, he finds himself unprepared to face this horrifying reality. The ready-made answers given by science and technology have failed him. The utopian dream of the past century has crumbled to dust, and modern man is aghast to find what the scientific robo of his own creation has turned into a veritable Frankenstein and is ready to gobble up his own maker. What is the message that the Gita gives to such a man? Many are the interpretations and misinterpretations about this ancient gospel. On the surface, it appears that the most important message of the Gita is the disinterested performance of our social duties. In fact, some even claim it to be a handbook of social service. But from the outset, it should be understood that the Gita is not a handbook of practical ethics, but a gospel of divine life. The action it urges is not human action, but action in the divine. Its ideal man is not the social worker, but the God-man, who having emptied himself of his ego, becomes merely an instrument or channel for the divine will to work through him for the good of the world. If our civilization has to have a future, it is only through the production of such godmen and not through the production of further nuclear weapons.
Before entering into the actual text of the Gita, we should have some idea of the historical background in which it is placed, as well as a brief knowledge of the spiritual history of India leading up to it. The most ancient scriptures of the Hindu faith are four in number and are known as the Vedas. In fact, they are the most ancient record of spiritual philosophy known to man. Each Veda, in turn, is divided into four parts. The first three need not concern us here now, but the last portion is known as the Upanishads. Each Veda ends with some of the Upanishads, and hence the philosophy of the Upanishads came to be collectively known as Vedanta or the end of the Vedas. Veda itself means knowledge, and thus the end or culmination of knowledge is the knowledge of the Supreme, and that is the subject matter of the Upanishads. They contain the highest philosophical truths ever to be grasped by the mind of man, the highest spiritual truths which the human intellect is capable of conceiving. The language of the Veda is strange and mystical, cloaked in allegory. It is difficult for the ordinary mind to grasp it in its entirety, since it is an esoteric teaching meant for the initiates alone. It is generally believed that the Vedic seers or rishis cognized the truth and experienced it while in a state of transcendental consciousness, which enabled them to have supramental vision. Their language is clothed in mystery and cannot be understood by the ordinary man who lives in a lower state of consciousness. The Vedas are considered to be older than all the other scriptures of the world. They are called anadi, or without end, since they contain the knowledge of the Supreme, which is endless. Even if we approach them from a purely historical point of view, they are the ecstatic expressions of the experience, earliest experiences of our race at the dawn of civilization. The earliest historical evidence in the world is provided by the Vedas. They are more valuable than copper plates and stone inscriptions. The Vedic age was surely the diamond age of Indian spiritual life, and perhaps of human spiritual life. For we find that the rest of the history of Hindu religion draws its inspiration and sustenance from this vast storehouse of spiritual power.
after the Vedic age, there appears to be a lull in Indian spiritual thought, maybe because the highest truths which could be expounded and experienced by the human being had already been expounded, and so there was nothing more to be said. This stands true even today. If one can master the Vedas and live according to their message, there is nothing more to be done. But as mentioned earlier, these truths are too lofty for the ordinary human mind to grasp. And thus we find, next, the golden age of Hindu thought, called the Pyramic Age. Without the Puranas, the Vedic religion, however sublime, would have passed into oblivion like the ancient Egyptian mysteries and Macedonian and Cretan cultures, which, though they had attained such high levels of spirituality, have been wiped off the face of the earth because they had no communication with the masses. Religion, if it is to serve its true purpose, must have its head in the heavens and its feet planted firmly on the earth. The authors of the Puranas were also rishis, but of a different type. It was their foresight and compassion which brought the truth of the Vedas to the level of comprehension of the common man. It may be difficult for the human mind to conceive of abstractions like truth, beauty, nobility, etc. But even a child can appreciate a noble man, a beautiful woman, and a truthful person. So the rishis Valmiki and Vyasa, the mighty intellects of the Puranas, wrote them in the form which was best suited for the simple mind, the form of a story. The sage Vyasa was the author of the 18 Puranas, as well as the mighty epic, the Mahabharata. And the sage Valmiki was the author of the epic, the Ramayana. These two classics were written in story form with a special purpose. A spiritual message was hidden between the leaves of the story so that both the listener and the narrator rose up in the spiritual ladder while listening and narrating. In other words, the Vedic truths were embedded in the Puranas so that unconsciously those who listened to them imbibed those truths. These Puranic stories are usually told to the Indian child while it is still in the mother's lap. So easy and simple are they for even a child to understand. And in and through these stories, 
were woven the mighty truths of the Vedas, sometimes spoken through the mouths of the characters, sometimes in examples given from the animal and bird kingdoms, and also embedded in the very structure of the story itself, so that the characters live the life of the Vedic heroes. Thus these mighty truths were woven into the very fabric of the daily life of the Hindu child, so that he lived the Vedic life whether he knew it or not. This is why it is said that Hinduism is a way of life and not a religion. The word Hinduism itself is a misnomer. The religion followed by the Hindus is known as Sanatana Dharma or the eternal law of righteousness. For it propagates the eternal truth which reveals itself in the purified mind and intellect of man from age to age, from civilization civilization. It is not the sole prerogative or exclusive property of any one nation or country. It is the birthright of the human being. By this compassionate act of theirs, the Puranic sages ensured that the Vedic way and code of righteous living the Sanadhana Dharma crept into the life of every man, woman and child in India and was not reserved for the chosen castes alone like the study of the Vedas. The Bhagavad Gita comes in the middle portion of the great epic, the Mahabharata. It is the fully ripened fruit yielded by the mighty tree of the Vedas. However mighty the tree, it is only the fruit which has practical value. The Bhagavad Gita is the twice distilled essence of the Vedic Dharma. For a better understanding of the Gita, we have to know something of the story of the Mahabharata. This epic touches on all the facets of the human personality, morality, religion and ethics. But these truths are woven into the story of the Kuru dynasty which ruled over India about 3,000 years before the birth of Christ. The main characters who appear in the epic are Bhishma, the grand old man of the Kuru clan, who was heir to the throne but gave it up and took a vow of celibacy in favor of his stepbrother. The blind king Dhritarashtra and his brother Pandu were Bhishma's nephews. The former had hundred sons, collectively known as the Kauravas, eldest of whom 
was Duryodhana. They were evil and wicked and hated the five sons of Pandu, their cousins, who were gentle and good and loved by all. The sons of Pandu were collectively known as the Pandavas. The eldest was Yudhishthira, who was a personification of all virtues. The second was Bhima. The third was Arjuna, master bowman of the age, the hero of the war, and the one to whom the Bhagavad Gita is addressed. The third and fourth were the twins Nakula and Sahadeva. Yudhishthira, the eldest of the Pandavas, was the rightful heir to the throne of the Kurus. But the Kauravas, especially Duryodhana, could not brook this, and with the help of their wicked uncle Shakuni, Duryodhana plotted to ruin the Pandavas and snatch the kingdom for himself. Krishna was the scion of the Yadava clan, the cousin and friend of the Pandavas. He was also God incarnate, which fact was unknown to Arjuna until he revealed his cosmic form in the middle of the Bhagavad Gita. It's a, it was only Bhishma who recognized his divinity from the first. Drona was the preceptor of both the Kauravas and the Pandavas. Sandhya was prime minister to the blind king Dhritarashtra. The entire Gita is narrated by him to the king. Yudhishthira ruled the kingdom from his famous capital Indraprastha, on which modern Delhi stands today. He and his brothers and their wife Draupadi were noted for their wisdom and peace-loving nature and loved by all their citizens. But their cousin Duryodhana could not bear to see their prosperity and with the help of his uncle he devised a plan to grab for himself all the wealth of the Pandavas, as well as to banish them. At a gambling match, which was managed by Chakuni, Yudhishthira lost everything, and the Pandavas were banished to the forest for a period of twelve years, after which one year was to be spent incognito at the end of this period, Duryodhana promised to give them their share of the kingdom. But true to his nature, at the end of the stipulated period, he did not keep his word. Yudhishthira was most anxious to avoid war at all costs, and he begged Krishna to go to the Kuru court to seek a reconciliation 
and avert war if possible. Yudhishthira was prepared to go to any lengths for the sake of peace. He told Lord Krishna to ask for half the kingdom at first, and if that was refused, to ask for five towns, and if that was refused, to ask for five villages, and if even that was unacceptable to Duryodhana, he promised to settle for five houses to himself and his brothers. Duryodhana laughed in scorn at this conciliatory message and derided the Pandavas for their cowardice. He told Lord Krishna that he would not give them even five pinpoints of land. If they wanted their kingdom, they were welcome to fight for it. Thus war became inevitable, much to Yudhishthira's sorrow. Both sides collecting an army, Duryodhana, who had already foreseen such a contingency, had already amassed an army which was twice the size of the Pandava host. But the Yadava army, belonging to Lord Krishna, had not yet been promised to either side. And it so happened that both Arjuna and Duryodhana went to Dwaraka, the capital of the Yadavas, at the same time in order to see Lord Krishna. Krishna offered them a choice, either his army or himself. Duryodhana objected and said that the arrangement was fair only if Lord Krishna refused to take up arms. Krishna laughingly agreed even to this unfair proposal, but gave the first choice to Arjuna since he had seen him first. Much to Duryodhana's relief, Arjuna unhesitatingly chose Krishna and the Yadava army was gladly taken by Duryodhana. Krishna then told Arjuna that since he was forbidden from taking up arms, he would at least take up the reins of Arjuna's chariot and become his charioteer. This is how he got the name Parthasaradi or Arjuna's charity. The two armies met on the battlefield of the Kurus, known as Kurukshetra, which is a town about 90 miles from modern Delhi. The battle lasted for 18 days, by the end of which the Kauravas were completely routed and the entire empire came to the Pandavas. The Bhagavad Gita is the discourse between Lord Krishna and Arjuna seated in the chariot at the commencement of the battle. We have already touched 
on the profound truths of spiritual life which were stated in the Vedas and Upanishads and which were synthesized in the Puranas. In the Gita, we find another synthesis, a synthesis of the Advaita or non-dualistic philosophy of the Upanishads with the duality of the Sankhya school of philosophy and the theism of the Puranas. The Gita, like a loving mother, embraces all these and more in her all-encompassing arms and opens not just one but many doors to the life divine. All those who have the heart and mind of an Arjuna can enter therein. No one is abandoned, none cast out. It is not meant for the Brahmin or the intellectual or for the initiates alone. The only criterion for studying this gospel is a burning desire to lead a spiritual life, a burning desire to know God and to be one with Him. Once this has been recognized as the priority of our lives, then we can begin the study of the Gita and its meaning will be clear to us and we will find a message to help us in every act and predicament of our daily lives. Otherwise, we will find only a meaningless jargon of an impossible theory. To one who has fixed his sights on the highest goal of life, the Gita offers an immediate and practical guide to extricate himself from the pangs of everyday living into the glories of a life divine. If there is any meaning to life, that meaning has to be found in and through this world itself. If there is a heaven, it has to be discovered on this very earth, or else it is of no use to us. If God is not some unjust monster incarcerating himself, in some other world, then he should remain with us every moment of our lives, helping us, guiding us, and comforting us, so that we can find a way to unravel ourselves from these coils and reach the goal of supreme beatitude in this very life. And this is exactly the message of the Gita. God is the only friend, relative, and guide which man can have, ever present, ever ready to help us, nay, carry us if need be. The only condition is that we should choose him of our own free will. 
admit that our greatest aim is to find him, to seek union with him, and to become one with him. Once that has been decided upon, the rest of the pieces of the jigsaw of life drops into place. Our study of the Gita must therefore begin with this affirmation. It is not a book one can read to while away an idle hour in the afternoon. It is a book with a divine purpose, which is to make man divine, to turn man into God. And for that purpose, God became man. The absolute took on human form, as he has done many times before and will do many times in future in order to steady the faltering steps of a bewildered humanity. In this instance, Lord Krishna is the avatar or incarnation of the age, and he gives the message of spiritual life to the prototype of man, Arjuna. So whenever Lord Krishna speaks in the first person singular. He is not referring to himself as the historical personage Krishna, but as the Purushottama or Supreme Godhead descended into man in order to help him ascend to him. May that divine charioteer deign to descend into the hearts of each one of us so as to enable us to extricate ourselves from the horrors of the age we are living in and step into the sunshine of a divine epoch. Harion Om Asadoma Shaddamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Mritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 From the unreal, lead us to the real from darkness to light, and from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace.
Mm-hmm.